you have your Bibles with you this morning, we're going to do a change-up if we can. I'd invite you to open them to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And the title of the message is, The Why of Suffering. The Why of Suffering. A little bit about your pastor that you may or may not know. You call me at 10 o'clock in the evening. I will either be asleep or incoherent. I don't function well at night. I don't. I'm a lark. My wife's a night owl. You call her at 10 o'clock, she's wide-eyed and bushy-tailed. But not me. I'm a 4.30 in the morning person. Every day I get up around that time. I drank my coffee, and one of the things that I've done for a number of years is I just think. There's a rocking chair on our front porch. There's a sofa in our living room. I don't turn on any lights. I just think. And what you're about to hear this morning comes out of one of those brainstorming thinking sessions. As I was thinking about suffering and tragedy and adversity and the tribulations of life that we face. So this message was good actually being prepared for later. But I thought because of what has taken place this week, maybe it needs to be sped up a little bit. The why of suffering. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 the words of the greatest Christian man who ever lived, Paul the Apostle. He's writing to the church at Corinth. He's writing to Miles Road Baptist Church. He's talking about a struggle that he has in his own life. A, a suffering. A tragedy. That he must endure. He says in verse 7 of 2 Corinthians chapter 12, And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of revelations that God has given me concerning heaven and eternal things, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, this suffering, this trial, this pain, I prayed to the Lord three times that he might take it from me. And each time he spoke to me and said, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I heard the story about a man who went to his dentist to have a root canal surgery. After the dentist numbed his mouth, the dentist left the room to let the medication take hold, to let the medication sink in. When the dentist returned several minutes later, he found the man standing up in front of the dental tray, going through the dental instruments that were going to be used for the procedure. 
And the man was taking some of the instruments off the tray and putting them in a pile on the left. And he was taking others of the instruments off the tray and putting them in a pile on the right. The dentist had never seen anybody do that before. He said, Sir, may I ask you what you are doing? And the man said, You sure can. I'm taking out the instruments I don't like. You know, I was thinking about that little story, and wouldn't it be nice, ladies and gentlemen, if we could pick and choose what we wanted and didn't want in this thing we call life? Wouldn't it be wonderful if life was just one big buffet table? And you can go through and say, I'll take that. I don't want that. Give me a little of that. I don't believe I want any of that. Wouldn't that be good? If we picked and chose what we wanted to have to deal with in this thing called life. Cancer? No thank you. A criminal assault, a rape or a murder on us or one of our family members. Not today. Financial hardships. I'll pass. The death of a loved one. How about later? Hurricanes. Definitely not. Wouldn't it be wonderful? We could just a little bit here, a little bit there. No thank you, don't want it. But you know, sadly and tragically, we can't do that, can we? We get what we get. And that brings us to a question that's been asked, and I don't know if it's been sufficiently answered, nor will it be this morning. Why does God allow suffering? Why does God allow pain? Why does God allow adversity? Why does God allow affliction? Not just in totality, but in individuality. Three things I want to lay on your heart as we consider the subject of suffering and tragedy personally as well as corporately. The first thing I want us to understand, and I, this is a very important thing to understand, is we are going to suffer. We are going to suffer because we live in a fallen world. No exemptions, no exceptions, no escapees, no exclusions, Look at me, look at your pastor. Every single person within the sound of my voice is going to suffer in this life. You are going to suffer. You say, Pastor, I've already suffered. You're going to suffer more. Pastor, I haven't suffered yet. Bid your time. It's coming. You see, the world that we live in is a fallen world. It's infected, it's infested with a disease called sin. And the Bible says the wages of sin is life. 
that what it says? The wages of sin is what? Tell me. Death. When Adam and Eve sinned, the first man and the first woman, the Bible says sin came into the human race. But sin not just came into the human race, it came into the world in which the human race would live. Sin has infected man, sin has infected all of creation. Everything that we have in this world is decaying, aging, and dying. Everything. Do you know anything right now that's not decaying? Do you know anything right now that's not aging? Do you know of anything that one day is not going to be in the junkyard or the cemetery? Everyone and everything is not evolving. It's devolving. We are falling down, we're falling apart, and we're going to fall away. And because our world is a fallen world infested and infected with sin, because our world is decaying and aging and dying, our world is full of the toxins that come from something that's dying. Have you ever seen something that's dying, and I'm not trying to be gross, but it, 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 it lets loose toxins and those toxins are often visible and they're not very pleasant to see. When something is dying, it often goes through what we call convulsions where it'll shake. May I suggest to you that our world that's dying is full of toxins. Our world that is dying is full of convulsions and those convulsions are called natural catastrophes that are shaking our world. Hurricanes, tornadoes, tidal waves, heat waves, cold waves. Could go on and on and on. Earthquakes, volcanoes. And as we live in a dying world, we're seeing evil increase and intensify as never before. I never thought in my lifetime I would see as many serial killers as we see today. We live in a world of crazies who have no regard for life, their own or anybody else's. In the old days, we used to have an expression, they'll kill you for a nickel. Today, they'll kill you for nothing. But the pleasure of watching you die. I'm painting you a bleak picture of our world, but you need to understand it's, that's where we live. And it's not going to get any better. That's why Jesus said loudly and clearly, in this world you are going to have trouble. That's why Job said, as the sparks fly upward, a man is born unto trouble. That's why the Apostle Paul said, all creation groans, sighs with pain through what it's experiencing. And we live in this world. We cannot escape living in this world. As long as you're in a physical body, you are going to be in this world. I am going to be in this world. And because this world is filled with suffering, it's a fallen world, we 
are going to experience that suffering. Do you understand that? Now, some of us might get more than others. Some of us might have a greater variety than others. But we're all going to get it. Shake your head. Look at it. Shake it. You are going one day to suffer if you're not already suffering because of the world that we live in. Secondly, in this world of suffering, we need to understand that God uses suffering for a specific purpose. God uses things. He doesn't cause everything, but he uses all things to make a difference in our life that we might make a difference in the world, the fallen world in which we live. Notice in verse 7 of the text we just read, the Apostle Paul is suffering He suffered much, by the way. And yes, he was the greatest Christian man who ever lived. Don't you buy into this theology by these joy boy preachers on television that if you live for Jesus, you'll never suffer. There's a name for that theology. It's called baloney. The Apostle Paul was the greatest Christian man who's ever lived. And yet he suffered, perhaps, as no man has ever suffered. In verse 7, he tells us one of the reasons why God allowed this suffering to come into his life. Lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of revelations that I have been given, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh. It was delivered by the messenger of Satan to buffet me, to make me suffer, lest I should be exalted above measure. Paul is talking about the purpose of why God allowed suffering into his life and why perhaps God allows suffering into our lives. Now, I want to, against again, I, I want to pound this home. You say, Pastor, you're getting old. You repeat yourself. No, I'm getting old, but I don't repeat myself without a reason. And I want you to understand who Paul was. Paul was the greatest of the apostles, head and shoulders above the others. He was the greatest missionary our world has ever seen, the greatest church planner there has ever been the greatest writer of scriptures. He wrote over half the New Testament himself. He's the greatest theologian and apologetics defender of the faith we have ever known. We're not talking about an average run-of-the-mill Christian. We're talking about the elite of the elite in Christendom. And yet he's hurting. He's suffering. He's going through a time of affliction in his life. And in Paul's suffering, 
In Paul's affliction from an ailment that he does not specifically tell us what it is. Something that was burdensome, painful, debilitating to him. He asked God three times. He was a man of prayer. He asked God three times to take it away. And each time God answered him. You know God here answers prayers, don't you? He doesn't always give us the answer we want to hear, though. Paul said three times, Lord, heal me, and three times the Lord said no. I have given you this affliction, Paul, because I want to keep you humble. That's what he says in verse 7. You see, even though Paul was a great man of God, he still had sins, didn't he? He still had struggles in the flesh. And one of Paul's struggles and sins that he battled continually with was conceit, arrogance, a self-righteous attitude that I'm better than you are. Do you know anybody like that? Maybe you're like that. You're conceited, you're arrogant spiritually. You look down your long nose at people that you believe are less than you. And you walk around patting yourself on the back because God's lucky to have you on his side. When Paul says he was exalted above measure, what he means was he was spiritually conceited. He struggled with that. And in that struggle, he had a tendency, a proclivity to say, look at me, not look at Jesus. Paul was brought this suffering by God for a specific reason. That he might not be overwhelmed by this sin of self-righteousness to the point that God couldn't use him. Heard the story of a little boy who told his mother he wasn't going to sit anymore. That's pretty good, isn't it? Little five-year-old boy. Mom, I'm not going to sit anymore. And she said, well, why do you say that? He said, because Jesus said, if you have no sin in your life, you can throw the first stone. And I want to throw it. You see, even in our best moments... We sometimes have ulterior motives. And though Paul did many wonderful things for God, he struggled with the fact that look at me and what I'm doing. And so the Lord, in his grace, gave Paul an affliction that kept that arrogance and that conceit in its place. Suffering has a way of turning us upward to Jesus and not inward to ourselves. By the way, Paul wasn't the only man who's ever been disciplined by God that God could use him. You know David was? 
King David, the greatest king Israel ever had, the one whom God said, when I look inside his chest and see his heart, I see a heart that is like mine. You know, David said of his suffering, he said, God used it to refine me as you would refine gold or silver. God used my suffering to purify me that I would be pure gold and pure silver. He took the he took the, 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 the impurities out of my life through my suffering. And David suffered, by the way. You know, Joseph, who of all the Old Testament characters is a picture of Jesus more than any other. Joseph said, God used my suffering to prepare me to be the vice president of Egypt one day. Suffering purifies. Suffering prepares. Suffering holds us back from being destroyed by the very sin that lives in us. Paul said, my suffering had a specific purpose. It was to keep me humble and holy. That God might could use me to do all of these things that I want to brag about doing, but I don't. And then lastly, in verse 9, suffering can allow God to show His power in our lives. Notice that though God said no to Paul three times about his condition, notice what he says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength will be made perfect in your suffering, your weakness, your trial, your tragedy. And then Paul says, Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my weaknesses and sufferings, that in that the power of Christ may rest upon me. We're going to suffer. Many times, if not all the time, that suffering has a purpose. We may not always understand the purpose, we may not always fully grasp why God is doing what He's doing, and we may not even like it, ladies and gentlemen. But in heaven we'll understand it, and in heaven we will see the reasons why God allowed it that allowed Him to be glorified through us and His power to be manifested through us. You see, it's through our adversities, whatever those adversities might be named, that God displays His power and His miracles. You'll never see the power of God if everything's okay all the time. You don't need it. You'll never see the miracles of God unless there's a tragedy or, or something going on that is of a negative variety that causes God to step in. The power of God is unleashed. The miracles of God are unveiled in the sufferings of life. Barbara Taylor was walking on the beach. And as she was walking on the beach, she saw further from the beach, over in a big pile of sand, a sand dune if you will, a giant turtle. 
It was a loggerhead turtle. Weighed probably about 400 pounds, about 36 inches long. Biggest turtle there is in the world. And somehow that loggerhead turtle had probably come on shore to lay her eggs, but she got disoriented. Maybe it took her longer to lay the eggs than she thought. The heat bearing down on her, which she was not used to, caused her mind to become disoriented, and the turtle, instead of going back to the beach to go back into the ocean, went toward the shoreline, further inland. And this big loggerhead turtle was dying. Barbara Taylor went and got a lifeguard, who in turn went and got a beach ranger, if you will. The beach ranger arrived in a jeep. He got out, and the first thing he did was he flipped the loggerhead turtle over on her back. He then took a rope and he tied her front legs with the rope. And he tied the other end of the rope to his jeep. And he began to pull the loggerhead turtle shell down. Rope attached to her front legs down the beach. When people saw that, they were appalled at his cruelty to the turtle. But he went for about 100 to 200 yards, and then he stopped the jeep, flipped the turtle back over after he untied her front legs, and he allowed the waves to begin to pound against her. And the waves began to renew and revive the turtle that was dying before. It wasn't long after that that the turtle's body temperature got right, her mind got right, and she swam back into the ocean, alive and well. What looked so frightening to those bystanders and beachcombers? What looked so cruel even to this lady who called for the beach ranger to come was used by God to save that turtle's life? Sometimes we look at our upside-down world and we wonder, does God care? Where's what's God doing? Why is he allowing us to die in the sands of life? And God says, I'm not allowing you to die. I am bringing things into your life that is going to give you life. If you'll just stay with me. Maybe the, what's going on upside down in our life is God's way of saving our life. You see, suffering's coming. And I think it's so important as I close this message that we frame the suffering. 
with the right attitude. Is this suffering, is this trial, is this affliction, is this tragedy that I'm going through, or my family's going through, or my community's going through, or my county or state's going through, or even our nation will go through? How am I going to handle it right here? Because it's really all about attitude. Will I allow this to get me better, or will I allow it to make me bitter? In Genesis 42, verse 36, Jacob, when he was going through some difficult times, made a statement. He said, all things are against me. As he looked at his life, he, he, he moaned and he groaned. And with a little bit of sarcasm and bitterness, he said, all Things are against me. A negative attitude that led to blaming and complaining and sinking him down like an anchor. That's a bitter attitude. The Apostle Paul, though, He likewise went through a lot of suffering, but he didn't have a bitter attitude. He developed a better attitude. His attitude is found in Romans 8.28. All things, all things, my cancer, all things, the death of my spouse, all things, my wayward children, all things, that criminal assault that was done against me, All things, all things are working together for good to those who love the Lord. Jacob said, all things are against me. That's bitterness. Paul said, all things are working together for the good. That's betterment. Because of that, Paul kept a positive attitude. He accepted things. He praised God. And instead of being an anchor sinking to the bottom, he was a buoy that rose to the top. So the question is, as I close, what are we going to do with the suffering that we are going through or shall go through? What are we going to do with it? Are we going to develop a better attitude and say, listen, I don't understand it all. But God is in it. God had a purpose in it. God has a purpose in it. God will have a purpose in it. And all that this I consider bad, God is changing it to the good. Somehow, some way, He's going to make it good. And I'm going to praise Him till He does. Instead of having a bitter attitude, blaming, accusing God and anybody else, and poisoning yourself with that bitterness and sinking yourself to the bottom of life's seas with it. We can't choose our suffering, can we? No, thank you. I don't want that. (laughs) I'll take a broken arm, but I don't want prostate cancer. 
I'll take somebody breaking in my home, but I don't want to get shot. We can't make those choices. We get what we get. But we can choose how we're going to respond to them. Betterment or bitterness? What will it be? How do you choose to be better? What are the steps to making a suffering into a betterment? Not allowing a suffering to become bitter, but allowing it to become a betterment. Not allowing yourself to sink as an anchor, but to be buoyed. How do you do that? Well, it's making sure, look at your pastor, that every day you find a reason to praise God. You can't praise and complain at the same time. You might be multitasked, but I'm telling you, you can't do it. And if you develop an atmosphere and a culture in your life of praise that carries on not just this way, but more importantly this way, you're on the right road to betterment. Praising God, giving thanks to God, even in the bad of life, the suffering of life, the tragedy of life, the afflictions of life. Thanking God. And then focusing on others. People who become bitter, all they do is look at themselves. Woe is me. People that get better not only praise God, but they focus on others. What can I do to be a blessing today to somebody? That's why we have the encouragement card and prayer ministry. You know that? Because some of you can't, don't have time or don't have the ability to do a lot more. But anybody can sit down and say, John Doe is on the list today, and John Doe has this particular condition and I'm going to pray for him or her by name. I'm going to pray for them. I'm going to ask God's grace to be manifested. I'm going to ask for God for healing. I'm going to ask God to give them hope. And then I'm going to write down on an old-fashioned card some words that I believe I would want to hear if I was them. And I'm going to send it to them. I'm going to take 15 minutes out of my life to pat somebody else on the back and tell them somebody cares. I'm telling you, it will change your perspective right there. When you learn how to praise God and throw in some hallelujahs instead of some moaning and groaning when you're hurting. And you focus on others. What can I do to make somebody else's life better today? And then thirdly, you'll get better when you expect nothing. You know, some people get all bent out of shape because they think, well, Pastor Jim should have done this. Pastor Norman should have done that. My Sunday school should have done this. So did it, did it, did it. Get over it. Have no expectations of anybody. And you will have a happy life. What do I expect of you? Nothing. What should you expect of me? Nothing. But I know you're going to do something. I know I'm going to do something. So we'll always get more than we expected, right? Then we'll be happy. 
Don't expect stuff out of people. Or better said, don't demand things out of people. And then lastly, if you want to get better, you praise God, you focus on others, you expect nothing, and you make a difference in your world. You know, the early church turned the world upside down for Jesus. You say, well, I can't turn the world upside down. No, you can't, but you can turn your world upside down for Jesus. Because you're the one that lives in that world. I can't turn your world upside down for Jesus. But you can turn your world upside down for Jesus. You can make a difference. In everything that's going on around you. With that betterment attitude, not that bitter attitude. Somebody wisely said, some people will make you happy when they leave the room. And other people will make you happy when they enter the room. Which are you? Which are you? Which am I? That's the question. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed.